Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. Suppose you have one of the most coveted positions in your field. Do you hold on to it and stay there forever, having achieved what others dream of achieving? Or do you move on? And if so, how and when do you make this move? Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are today. I'm your host, Beth Davies, and I am thrilled to have award-winning journalist Laura Meckler join me for this episode. Currently, Laura is National Education Writer for The Washington Post, where she covers national trends and federal policy. Before joining The Post, she held a role many journalists aspire to, White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. This put her at presidential inaugurations, in the White House briefing room, and on Air Force One traveling around the world with the President of the United States. So how did she navigate her career to become a White House correspondent, and what made her decide to move on from this role? Laura is here to take us through her story. So welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So I do want to start out, actually, by acknowledging, Laura, that you and I have known each other for quite a long time. Uh, In fact, I think I have known you since the day you were born. I was going to say, I don't think there's been a time I haven't known you. Uh, Yeah, our, our, our parents were the best of friends. And yet there's so much I don't know about you because our lives just took different paths. And so I'm thrilled to have you here and get to know you in a way that I've never known you before. And I want to start by talking about what you're doing now as National Education Writer for The Washington Post. So obviously you write articles, it's a newspaper, but I have a feeling you do a lot more than just write. If I followed you around for a few days, what would I see you doing? What does a journalist do? Well, we do a lot of different things. I mean, there are a lot of different steps that you go into from an idea for a story to till a story actually is produced. But what you would really see me doing is you would see me sort of gathering string for ideas, reading emails, reading other people's stories, looking at Twitter, reading reports, talking to people. I mean, that's a lot of what I do is just kind of figure out what's out there and what should we be thinking about? What should we be writing about? What sort of news can we break? So I'm sort of out there as a vacuum trying to absorb the world that I'm responsible for covering. So that's sort of on its highest level. But you'd also see me talking to sources, um, talking to colleagues. You might see me having meeting people for coffee or meeting people for lunch. You know, before I had little kids meeting people for drinks um, or maybe dinner. Um, The idea to just touch base with people, develop and deepen relationships and better understand what it is that they know so I can better bring those stories to people. You would see me after I'd gathered all the information, um, especially if it's a complicated story, sort of organizing that information, going through, reading my own notes. As I read my notes, I, I either circle things that I think are important or put them in bold if it's electronic. Then I'll go and um, create, uh, depending on how much time and how complex the story is, I might create an outline for that story for myself, sort of a list of the main points I want to hit. And then I'll actually sit down to write it. I'll spend some time editing my own work. 
And then I deal a lot also with just logistics of, you know, arranging photos, working with graphics, headlines, dealing with my editors who are editing my story, that sort of thing. What is it about this work that appeals to you? I love doing this. I mean, it is such a window on the world. It's an excuse to ask people questions um, about just about anything. I have the ability to really um, see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. In the normal times, I would travel places and go and watch, sort of watch the world. And that's just a great privilege to be able to see what's happening and for myself and then try to translate that. So I'm just very curious about the world. And this is a great um, business to be in if you want to ask people questions because you sort of have the license to ask just about anything. I think I've learned that actually in my role here as a podcast host that I do, I've got all this permission to ask people questions that I wouldn't otherwise ask. And sometimes I wonder like, well, why don't I just ask questions like that? But it absolutely falls to role. Like you have permission in certain roles to be able to ask questions. Totally. Totally. And also, I'll just add also in terms of what I really enjoy about my work is that the culture of a newsroom is just a great place. The people are really smart. They're funny. People banter around ideas and gossip. And it's just like a great environment to be in. So let's find out how you got to where you are. Tell me about your childhood and how you think it might have shaped the person you are today and the career that you have today. So... Both my parents were lawyers. Um, They were both unhappy lawyers, I should say. I think my dad's first job was actually working for your dad. And maybe he was happy then. But by the time I came along, he wasn't really that happy as a lawyer. Um, Neither was my mom. And so I sort of saw that as an example of doing something that is a job you're supposed to like, but maybe, maybe you don't. I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't even have an idea about being a journalist until maybe high school. The thought was planted in my head, but it was really once I got to college and I joined my college newspaper that I realized how much I liked it. As a child, you know, I was interested in government. I was interested in issues and public policy, but like I found myself less drawn to an activism and more drawn to wanting to explain and understand what was happening on both sides of of controversial issues. And I think partly when I got to college, it was also the, um, that culture piece, the culture of a newsroom in college is similar too. And I got there and just felt like I was home. So let's talk then about, about college. So where did you go to school and what did you major in? Um, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, They don't have a journalism program. And I wasn't really looking for a journalism program, partly because I didn't really know I wanted to be a journalist when I was applying to colleges. And I don't know if this was as conscious at the time or if I've just um, come to realize it since then, but, you know, journalism isn't really a discipline. It's not something that you need to study per se. It's really a trade that you learn to to do. So one of the pieces of advice I give to young people who are interested in journalism that it's um, you can certainly go to journalism school and there's nothing wrong with that. And they, they'll teach you a lot, but you can also learn a lot by doing, by being on your college newspaper, by getting internships, by, by just out there doing the, the craft of journalism. So when I got to college, I majored in political science and uh, international development But really what I majored in was the college paper where I became editor-in-chief and I spent far more time, um, perhaps this was not the smartest uh, move, but far more time at the newspaper than I did on my schoolwork. So it sounds like being involved on the school newspaper and becoming editor-in-chief really was the pivotal experience that shaped and launched the career that you have today. How did you get involved in the school newspaper? What even attracted you to it? 
You know, the the seed had been planted about journalism in high school when I was just talking to somebody who mentioned that he was interested in maybe being a journalist. And I thought, huh, maybe, maybe I should think about being a journalist. It was just like that. I wasn't really even that involved with my high school newspaper. I wrote a few articles for them, but I wasn't on the staff. Um, but and then I got to college and, you know, it's just a new chance to reset. And so they're always looking, you know, constantly recruiting writers. So getting on the paper was not difficult. And it was probably in the spring of my freshman year when I had been writing stories, taking assignments. And at the time, the way it worked, you would sort of get an assignment over the phone. You would work on it. You would type your story and then you would kind of just drop it off. It wasn't electronic. You would just drop it off in this basket in the newsroom. And, you know, whenever you did that, there were always people buzzing around. And I would at first just drop my article off and then run out the door um, because I was like, I don't really belong here. But for whatever reason, there was a time in my spring of my freshman year when I ended up just sort of hanging out there and talking with people uh, about a story I was working on. And I got involved with an older a uh, reporter there, um, you know, older, like maybe two years older than me <laughs> on, um, you know, it seems older at the time um, about um, something we were going to work on together. And at one point he said, okay, we're going to go interview the chancellor. He had set up an interview with the chancellor of the university. I was like, ah, so it was just exciting. And this idea that we were taking on the big issues of the campus and it was just such, so heady, you know, this idea that I'm, engaging in the central issues of what this university is about. And I'm bringing these stories to students and to helping to drive the conversation. So really it was that those few moments, my, my spring and my freshman year, when I just felt like this is just such an exciting place to be. So what was your plan for after graduation? Um, my plan was to get a job at a newspaper and I, uh, or an internship that summer. And I had applied for some internships. I did not get one for that summer. I actually went with a friend to Europe for the summer, which was great. But then when I got back, my plan was to work for a newspaper. And I applied to small to medium-sized newspapers over like a large swath of the U.S. I mean, basically from the Midwest into the Northeast. And I, I don't know how many places I sent letters and clips to, but a bunch of places. And I got a couple bites and I ended up getting hired just an hour south of where I grew up. Um, I grew up, as you know, in Cleveland, and I uh, my first job was in Canton, Ohio. So my goal coming out of college was to get, get a job at a newspaper. The level of rejection that you were facing with all of these kinds of no's or lack of response is something I think a lot of people experience. Do you remember sort of what your coping strategy was, or do you have any advice for people who are hearing a lot of rejection while they're looking for a yes? Yeah, I got a lot of no's, but I wasn't really invested in getting hired at any one of these particular places. I just kind of wanted a job. I figured this is just going to be for a short time, then I'll move to a bigger paper and then to a bigger paper. That was sort of my plan was to kind of leapfrog up the journalism food chain. And um, it didn't really matter to me that much where it was. So even though I maybe only got two offers and 48 rejections, it, it kind of felt okay then. But later on, I definitely felt that when I was trying to get out of Canton. So I went to Canton, I was there for a few years, and then I was like, okay, I'm ready to leave. And I was trying desperately to get out of Canton. I was applying all over the country and just getting a lot of rejections. Why were you at this point now wanting to leave Canton? 
for starters, um, being single, young, 20-something in Canton, Ohio, when you're not from Canton, Ohio, is not necessarily the best um, social life available. I had friends at the paper who are still my lifelong friends who I cherish, and, and I got great opportunities in Canton, but I was just ready to move on. I was very ambitious. But then, like you just said, you were finding that to be a hard move and a hard transition to make. So tell me how that finally happened. Well, first I'll answer a a previous question you asked about this, which was like, how do you deal with it? And the way I tried to deal with it was just to focus on doing good work. One thing I realized was that when you're applying for jobs, being consistently good doesn't really get you very far. You need to be occasionally amazing. Like you need a few clips that are going to blow people away. So I tried to focus on doing projects and doing stuff that I thought would just hit, that was harder edged and making a real impact and tried to, as much as I could, reject assignments that were just kind of never going to be great. You know, everybody has to do those to some extent, but I really tried to keep my eyes on the prize of doing really outstanding work. I mean, that at the end of the day is is the answer. And it's always been the answer. And I've had, I faced this at a few times. I mean, there are people whose careers just kind of rock it up, but mine was not that way. I like really scratched my way up this, this food chain. And it was like, I always just tried to refocus myself on just do good work and eventually it'll be okay. So ultimately, how did I get out? Um, I decided to take the AP test, which is the Associated Press test, which is what you take to get to join the Associated Press. I thought, well, I'm not getting hired at these newspapers. I was desperate to work at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, my hometown newspaper. They would not hire me. I was desperate to work at the Akron Beacon Journal. It was a great paper back then. And I just kept having interviews with them and never getting hired. All these places I tried. I literally have a, still have these. I think I might have thrown them away finally, a stack of rejection letters. So I thought, well, maybe the AP, maybe that would be a way to do it. So I took the AP test. In the meantime, when I was sort of awaiting the results of that, a job opened up in Columbus covering the state house for 17 papers around the state. And I thought, well, none of these papers is really any bigger than the one I'm at now. In fact, most of them were smaller, but this is like state government. So this is like a step forward and maybe I just need to get unstuck. So I took that job, even though it wasn't really what I had in mind, I thought this will open up new windows for me by doing this. So it sounds like your plan in taking this move was for it to be next. Maybe it was going to be short term, but just to help get you, like you said, unstuck. What was the experience? How did it turn out? Well, it turned into an unmitigated disaster um, is what actually happened. It was a two-person bureau. The bureau chief, the other reporter, was a nice guy, terrible manager, just a, a absolute horror. He was very controlling. He was um, did not want to hear any ideas that weren't his own he would assign stories to me and I would go and investigate them and find out in some cases that there really wasn't anything there, but Hey, I have this other idea instead. And he's like, no, I already promised the first story. So you have to do that. And it was a very, very difficult, very difficult relationship. I think it was really in retrospect, I can see that I think it probably was some insecurity on his part and probably also on my part, maybe a little bit of headstrongness of kind of like, I, I I know what I'm doing. Don't you can't tell me what to do. Um, so I'm sure I played a role in it. Um, I'm not exactly a shrinking violet, but it was um, it was a bad match. Let's put it that way. So after 
six months, I had a six month review and I, I knew that it wasn't going to go well. Cause I could cl- see he was irritated with me and I decided whatever he said in this review, I, I would tell him I was going to think about it over the weekend. And, res- and this is advice I'd be given from one of my old bosses, just respond in writing on Monday. And he gave me this review, which was very laudatory for my writing and my reporting and my initiative, but it had this other score for my alleged attitude, which he gave me the lowest score possible. And then he gave me the lowest score possible overall, even though I was, my writing and reporting were the highest scores. So clearly he was just kind of out to get me and I was just floored by this review. And I said, I'd like to think about it right over the weekend. He said, no, you're going to respond right now. And that will determine whether you have a job on Monday. I was just completely freaked out. And I just, there were like all sorts of things in this review that were just patently false. I just decided, okay, I'm in survival mode now. This is about just keeping this job until I can find another one. And so I wrote my response, essentially um, disputing the things that I thought were just outright false and promising to do better. Essentially, you know, I just sort of felt like I said what I had to say. And, um, he said, okay, let's try again. So, okay. I got past that. And of course now I'm in a, a outright panic, right? Because I'm like, I need another job. Well, I'm trying to get a job from the same people who hadn't hired me six months ago, you know? So I'm freaking out about this. And it just so happens right around that time, I was at the um, statewide journalism awards lunch, which I, I was there because for something I had won when I was working in Canton. And I ran into the, actually, no, this this awards thing had been a few months earlier. And I had run into the assistant bureau chief at the AP bureau in Columbus. And he mentioned to me, oh, you did really well on the test. I said, oh, well, yeah, I just moved to Columbus for this other job. He's like, okay, well, just FYI, we're going to have an opening in about in about six months. If you're interested or if you know anyone, let me know. It's like, okay, I just filed that away. And so then when this review happened, I called him and I said, what's this, that's job still available? And he said, well, yeah, it is. He said, but it's a, it's a temporary job. It's only, it's someone's on maternity leave and it's only guaranteed for eight months. So I was like, well, what do I do? Like, do I take this AP job that's guaranteed for eight months or do I keep this job, which I could lose tomorrow, (laughs) you know, who knows? So I asked the editor of the paper in Canton, who I um, relied on for advice. I called him up and said, what do you think I should do? And he said, at the AP, there are no temporary jobs. If you're good, you should take this job. You'll be fine. That's what I did. I took, well, I first, I called the my, my boss in Columbus is his boss, who was the Washington bureau chief. And then I let him know exactly what was going on and said, I have another job offer. And unless things are going to change around here, I'm quitting. And he basically is like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I'm, you know, he's like hundreds of miles away. He's like, I think you should take the job. This is clearly not working. And he was hundred percent right. So I took the job. I showed up at the AP bureau um, in Columbus and I have a list. I have 12 story ideas that I had not been allowed to write when I had been at my previous job. And I just sat down with them and just had a meeting with the news editor and the assistant bureau chief. I said, well, here are my ideas. And I start just going through them. And they were like, their mouths were like a gate. They're like, we like all of these ideas. Just go for it. Just start here, start with this one. And I just started cranking them out. 
And it was just a great, really positive experience there. And then as it turns out, about four or five months later, there was a job posting for a job in Washington for the with the AP. And I'd always kind of wanted to be in Washington. So I said, well, can I apply for this? And, and they were, and they said, well, uh, you know, a temporary attempt applying for, for Washington, that's like unheard of. And I said, well, just so they know who I am, you know, I'm not right out of college. I've already at this point had five years of experience in journalism. They said, well, let me check. So my bureau chief in Columbus called the bureau chief in Washington. Can, can this woman apply? And they're like, sure, she can apply. So around that time, the bureau chief in Columbus sat me down and said, listen, said, everybody in the AP eventually achieves their goals. And he tells me about this guy who had started in the Columbus Bureau, started on the night desk, like as an editing night, copy and night, started on the night desk. Then he moved to the day desk. Then he became a reporter in Columbus. Then he got to Cleveland and he was the correspondent. Then he got to Washington as the Ohio regional reporter. Then he went on to the national staff as the overnight. Then he went on to the night desk. Then he went on to the day desk. Then now he's a reporter. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be dead before I go through all of that. Um, and this job I was applying for was just as a straight up reporter in on the national staff in Washington. So anyway, I applied they brought me to DC for an interview. I was completely blown away by this place. This really was the big time. I mean, the AP Washington Bureau is a big deal place. And I was so impressed by it. And I had, you know, I didn't think I had gotten the job at all. And, but I thought, oh, well, I had a trip to Washington for a few days, came back, walked into the office, the Columbus office and the, uh, the news editor, this wonderful woman named Beth Grace. She, she pulled me aside and she said, what did you say to them? I said, what? She goes, what did you say? I said, she goes, no, you got the job. Now go to the bathroom right now. She ordered me to the bathroom. You're not supposed to know this. <laughs> she ordered me to go to the bathroom so I wouldn't react in a way that was obvious to the people on the, in, the, in the room. So, and I, which I did, and then just like jumped around. So that was like really my big break. And it's, I've looked back on my career. Um, the reason I tell this whole story here, since it seems sort of, um, kind of what this podcast is about. I like look back on my career and I think the worst thing that ever happened to me career-wise was going to that job where I was miserable um, in this two-person bureau. And it it was it was just a terrible experience. But if I hadn't been there, I never would have taken a temp job with the AP. And, and if I hadn't taken that temp job, I never would have gotten that job in DC. So it it all worked out. So you just never really know what is going to be good or bad. It's such a great story. So thank you for sharing. And and that wisdom from it is exactly what we're trying to share. Uh, and it's it's so spot on. But I am curious if there was anything, thinking about the, the person at the bureau you went back to who said, what did you say? What did you do? Was there anything that you can think of that you did during that interview in Washington that made such a strong impression? Um. For sure. Um, probably um, the the advice I talked about earlier, which is that you just need to show your best work. You know, I had sent my clips both from Canton and also when I got to the AP in, in Columbus, I just immediately started trying to do ambitious stories. And so I had those under my belt to talk about. Um, I don't know. This is now a long time ago. So I don't really remember the details of the interview other than I know who did interview me. Um, and 
I just remember just sort of trying to emphasize what the best of the work I had done, but that's what anybody would do. So I don't really have any specific, specific wisdom about that. How did you build your career during the time that you were with the AP? So I was hired to be the night general assignment reporter, and that meant that I would just do whatever was needed on that particular night. One time I actually went and covered a a big fundraising event, a big fancy like ball essentially, and was interviewing Barbara Walters, which sounds impressive until I tell you the next thing that happened, which was that Princess Diana came over to us to say hello to Barbara Walters. So I was right next to Princess Diana. So sometimes it was stuff like that. Other times it was like, at that time, um, we would find out what the big newspapers were reporting around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we would get copies of their stories. This was really before um, the internet was what it is today. And we would sometimes have to try to match those stories. So I would know nothing about something. I would read the story and then I would be calling someone to find out if this is true. And then I'd be writing about it, like, you know, all within an hour, you know, which was like pretty crazy writing with any authority about something that I literally knew nothing about an hour earlier. So that's what I did first. And then that was in 1996. And as that year came to an end, it was the uh, beginning of the second term of the Clinton administration. And that's a time when um, newsrooms often shuffle their assignments. So I was hoping to get a beat. And a beat that was open and that I was very interested in was covering the Department of Health and Human Services, which was essentially health and welfare policy. And so I was given that beat. And that really is how I built my career was covering healthcare and welfare reform, the implementation of, of the big 1996 welfare reform bill. So um, I kept with those topics for a while. I, I Occasionally, I did politics in presidential years, um, like in the 2000 campaign, I covered political advertising. So I put my toe into covering politics there too. Um, So I sort of built it that way. At some point you did decide to leave the AP. Tell me about that. Why did you decide to leave this prestigious organization? Well, I really wanted to do more enterprise reporting as opposed to daily news reporting. I wanted to come up with my own story ideas and tell a story that wasn't going to be told if I didn't take it on. And you could do that at the AP, but it was very hard to get newspapers to run those stories. We were very, we were very dependent, especially then, on getting our members, which are the newspapers, to use the stories. You couldn't get AP stories directly unless a member printed them. So it was frustrating to me that I would write a story, but you know, it was kind of a tree falling in the forest and nobody heard it. The the thing that AP, the bread and butter is breaking news, really breaking news, like um, getting ahead of something, but you could work really hard and be the first person to report something. And then everybody else would have it 10 minutes later. I called it like the 10 minute scoop today. It's more like probably a two minute scoop, but it's kind of exciting at the time, but it's a little bit of a sugar high. It doesn't necessarily leave you feeling satisfied um, at the end of the year. Like I remember one of my, one of the like great day, I was on Sunday duty. It was during the anthrax attacks. If you remember that after 9-11, I was covering that, that bioterrorism and and this anthrax attacks that were happening all over. People were receiving letters that had anthrax in it and they were opening them and getting very sick. And this was happening a lot. And this is near the beginning of it. And 
we, I was there on a Sunday morning. We got word that the mayor of Washington, D.C. was holding a press conference like a couple hours later. So I called the, the spokesperson for the health department and asked, and we knew there were two postal workers who were in the hospital, but we thought that they were, we didn't know how, what the deal was with them. And I called him and he, I said, what's it get, what are they, what's the mayor going to say at the press conference? And he said, he told me that these one or both of these postal workers was gravely ill. I remember that was the phrase gravely ill. And I said, what's your name and how do you spell it? And he's like, no, 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 you can't quote me. You have to quote my boss. I said, have your boss call me within 45 seconds and I'll quote, quote him instead of you. And he said, okay. And his, he did it. The boss called me and repeated this comment. And we put out a story, like almost instantly, we had that story filed. And it, it probably posted at maybe, let's say, 9.58. And at, let's say, 10 a.m., the CBS, uh, CBS's um, Face the Nation went on and Bob Schieffer opened his opened the show with the Associated Press is reporting that two postal workers are, or one postal worker is gravely ill. And my boss um, was sitting right next to me, saw this whole thing happen. And, uh, you know, and it was just such a high, you know, to do that. But at the end of the day, who remembers that I had this little scoop before anybody else? Ultimately, the mayor had the press conference and everybody found out. So, I was just kind of wanting something more than that. I, and- no, I I get it, Laura, because you've been saying all along that one of the things you learned early on was that you've got to have the big stories that you can share with other people so that they can see who you really are and can really highlight your work. And it sounds like you're doing these breaking news things that may get picked up, but not necessarily building the that bank of work that you like to have to be proud of. Right, exactly. And I did do some of that at AP and they did let me do that. I mean, this is no, no knock on the AP at all. They let me do those and they do value that, but it was hard to get newspapers to run those stories. And that was just, so I was just wanted to work for a big newspaper. So I had, in the meantime, I um, did a fellowship, a year long fellowship called the Neiman Fellowship, which lets you go to Harvard for a year and just audit classes and be in this community with other journalists for a year. It's sort of like an intellectual vacation. And it was an amazing experience. And when that was over, I went back to the AP, but I knew that I was hoping to get to a big newspaper. How did you get that fellowship? I applied. Um, it was the second time I applied. I had applied the year previous and had not had not been chosen. So I sort of refined my application and talked to people about what it was. I talked to the curators of the program and what were they looking for and tried to think more deeply about what I wanted to say. I think my application improved a lot. So I got it the second time. So what happens to your job at the AP when you're doing a fellowship like that? Are they still paying you or is it that you're taking a leave from your job and then you know you're going to have your job to go back to? How does that piece work? Um, Yes. In order to apply, your employer has to promise to take you back, hold your job for you. At least that was the case at the time. I don't know if it's changed at all, um, given the um, difficult state of journalism these days, but those were the rules then. And you get a stipend from the fellowship. So I did not also, I did not get my salary during that time, but it it, it worked out roughly close enough. So when it was over, though, you went back to the AP, but at the same time, you knew that for you personally, your time at the AP was needed to be winding down. How did you manage that next transition? uh, And where did you go? 
Uh, this is another serendipity. Uh, the day I found out that I had gotten the Neiman Fellowship was also the day that our congressional press passes expired. So I was on the Hill to get mine renewed. And I ran into a friend of mine um, and told her of the news. And she said, oh, you should talk to John Harwood. Um, you may know him now. He's a CNN reporter. At the time, he worked for the Wall Street Journal. And she said he was a Neiman Fellow and he loved his experience. You should talk to him. I didn't know him. I knew who he was, but I did not know him. Anyway, I get in line to get my press pass renewed and he's in line in front of me. So I start chatting with him about it. And he's so excited for me about the Neiman. And he said, and he says to me, what do you want to do when it's over? I said, well, I'd love to work for a big paper. He said, call me when you're done. So I did. And he was so generous to me. He um, hooked me up with bureau chiefs all over the city to talk to at big newspapers. Um, And I talked to several people. And ultimately, he introduced me to his boss um, and his friend, the bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal. And it was interesting because I had had other experiences that just seemed to languish. I, I talked to the New York Times and it never quite seemed to be the right fit there. And I was always just felt so frustrated and like I was always almost there, not getting hired. And then at the journal, I had this great conversation with the bureau chief named Jerry Seib, a truly wonderful and absolutely first rate boss and journalist. And we had a great conversation and he said, I don't have any openings now, but I'll keep you in mind. I said, okay. And then not that long after that, I got an email from John Harwood and he said, I remember the email. All it said was, how picky are you about beats? And I said, "Mm, what do you have in mind? And the job that was open was covering transportation and was not anything I knew anything about or necessarily had any aspiration to cover. But I thought this is a way in. And Jerry told me, he said, come do this. And I fully expect to move you to healthcare maybe in a year or so. I said, okay. Sure. So I took that job. How did you communicate that back to AP? Well, they got word of it through the grapevine, and I'm not exactly sure how. And an assistant bureau chief there pulled me into a room and closed the door and told me for like, you know, what seemed like an hour, I don't know how long it was, all the reasons why I shouldn't take this job. But I realized I really needed to take this job. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is an excellent newspaper. And I just thought this is really going to help me take my career to the next level. I felt like I had done what I, all that I really could do at the AP. And I just was ready for something else. So by the time I actually went to tell my boss, she she kind of, she already, she already knew. So the promise was that you would do transportation for a year and with the idea of ultimately moving you back into health and human services. Did that happen? It did. It it did. I did transportation for a year-ish, maybe a year and a half. And then I moved back to healthcare in particular. I got to spend a lot of that time writing about um, organ transplantation, which was an absolute thrill for me. I did some stories that I absolutely loved that year. So. Jerry was 100% true to his promise. At some point, you started working on presidential campaigns. And ultimately, as I mentioned at the start of our interview, you did get to be a White House correspondent. How did that happen? How did you go from healthcare to presidential coverage and campaigns? At the end of 2007, the campaign was underway and they needed more people to cover the campaign. So Jerry asked me if I was interested and I said, sure. So I ended up being assigned to the Republican race. So I covered the Republican primary 
not from the beginning, but from about late 2007. And ultimately that transitioned me on to covering the McCain campaign, which I did for the rest of that year. So I, I had some experience covering politics, but not a lot. And then when that ended, when the 2008 campaign ended, the White House reporters who had covered the Bush administration were leaving that beat. We had hired a reporter to cover the White House and they wanted a second one. And I think I indicated I was interested. The bureau chief was different at the time. And I don't remember if he came to me or if I came to him first, but in any case, he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I think I had a choice between doing that and covering healthcare because we knew healthcare was going to be a big issue because Obama, as we know, was, was planning on doing that. So I just decided that this White House assignment was something I couldn't turn down, that it would be just an amazing experience. So it was not something I had been like laying my whole career for. This is the only thing I want to do. It's just something that kind of came up organically and was just a great opportunity. Being a White House correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, for those of us not doing that role, that sounds quite glamorous, quite amazing. What's it What's it really like? What were the joys? What were the challenges of this role for you? I mean, it is a very hard job. You have to be on top of a lot of different things at the same time. There are a lot of excellent reporters covering the White House. It is very competitive. A lot of people chasing the same little bits of news, trying to break that news. So you had to persuade people to give things to you before they would give them to others, try to talk to people outside the White House to try to find out what was happening inside the White House. It was was a very, very challenging, hard job. I never could put my phone down. Um, just because you just never knew when something was happening, when somebody was asking a question, when an editor needed something, when somebody else had broken something and we had to match it, you were kind of always on. So it is not particularly glamorous. I hate to say it. There are some cool things and I'll share a few of them, but it really is a lot of like, if you're say like on a domestic travel trip where let's say the president's going to Kansas city to talk about his healthcare plan, what does that look like? And let's just say you're in the um, pool. So you're in a small group of reporters traveling with the president. So you have to get to Andrews Air Force Base at a very early hour of the day. The one ironclad rule is the president does not wait for the press. So the press is always assembled well ahead of the president. So you're there so early and then you're waiting, waiting maybe once you get there and you get screened and cleared. Now you're on Air Force One and you're waiting for... um, the president to show up. Maybe that's 45 minutes later. You go, he comes, he walks out, might wave, walks onto the plane. Occasionally being on the plane, the president might come back and chat with the press, but it didn't happen. That was not an everyday occurrence by any means. Fly to a place, get on a bus, go to a high school gymnasium, hear a speech that you've probably already heard before. Maybe there'll be some news in it. Maybe there won't. Um, There used to be covering the White House that you would have time to write your story before everyone picked up and left. But now, since everybody can kind of be online all the time, they don't really build in a lot of filing time. So you're quickly writing your story, you're watching, you're trying to interview a few people maybe in the audience, and then you're back on the bus or in the vans, headed back, desperately trying to finish your story while you're in the van, hoping to press send before the plane takes off. So it's a, it's high pressure. And, and at the end of the day, that is not even like necessarily that great a story, you know, (laughs) like it's not a story that's going to be like in your, in your, like, look what I did um, this year sort of things. So 
Is it glamorous? Yes. It's cool to be on Air Force One. The food is really good. Is it fun when the president comes back and chit chats? Yeah, sure. That's fun. I'm not going to lie. But there's a lot more waking up early, being in vans under pressure, you know, listening to the same speech over and over. That That's that's more common. Covering politics, you're often in situations where your personal views are quite different than the candidates or the politicians that you're covering. What strategies do you use to deal with this? You know, this is not really something that I find difficult. I have personal opinions like everybody else, but um, I think maybe that's why I'm drawn to this work is that I really want to hear what other people have to say, um, what all sides have to say. I want my stories to reflect the point of view of everybody. I want people on all sides of an issue to read the story and say, yes, you put in my best argument. You gave my my voice. The best thing I had to say is reflected in there. And I don't really find that to be a huge personal challenge. So while you're covering the White House, and in this crazy world that you were just describing, you decided to start a family. Well, yeah. So I had been trying to get pregnant for a little while, and it was not the easiest thing. I found out that I was pregnant right after the 2008 campaign ended, and my older kiddo was born in um, August of 2009. So I was, I mean, I did disclose this before I actually took the beat, like FYI, I'm pregnant, going to have to, you know, so I did take leave from August until the end of that year. How did you manage these two aspects of your life? I mean, this was hard. I mean, that, that is, was really hard to have a young child and do this. I mean, I managed it because I have a husband who is great and who is home from work reliably at six o'clock. We had great childcare, but it was still very challenging to juggle all of this stuff. It, it, it could be a lot. You did decide to leave the Wall Street Journal and covering the White House. Tell me about that decision. Why did, why did you decide it was time to move on from that role and the Wall Street Journal? Well, those were two separate steps. So first, at the end of the 2012 campaign, I knew I wanted to leave the White House beat. Um, I had been doing it for four years. There are some people who are amazing White House reporters who have done it for many years over many terms, and God bless them. They are doing fantastic work. I did not think I did my best work as a journalist in that role. I say it was my greatest journalistic experience, but not my greatest journalism. There are a few stories I think are standout that I still am really proud of from that time, but it wasn't like it wasn't like I felt like I need to keep doing this. Plus, I was pregnant with a second kid who was born in February 20th. 13. So I knew I was going to have two kids. So that was going to be really hard. People say uh, a White House correspondent is a great job to have had. And I and I agree. And so I moved on to a beat covering immigration and demographics immediately after the White House. Then in 2015, I was asked to come back onto politics and they needed, more, again, needed more people. So I was brought back on in 2015 and assigned to the Clinton campaign. So I covered Hillary Clinton campaign for almost two years. And then that ended and I went back to immigration at the journal, which was now the first two years of the Trump administration. So immigration was a very, very, very busy story. It was in fact, one of these stories. Why did you decide to leave the journal and go to the post at this at this point? Well, there were a lot of reasons for it. Um, uh, the journal 
is a wonderful paper. I, I really respect the people there. It's a very heavily edited paper. And sometimes it felt a little, a little oppressive, like you couldn't really write there. Um, at least I felt that way sometimes. Um, also, there's a, were very strict rules about story lengths. They want short stories. And maybe that's what readers want. But I kind of want to write for readers who want longer stories. So I wanted the ability to really give a story what it what it needed. I was also very interested in social policy and issues of race. And that is not something that was like in the core coverage for the journal. And I just kind of felt like I had done what what I had had a great run there and it was just ready for ready for something, ready to try something new. So going into the post, you went in to cover education. How has the experience now been for you a couple of years in? So I'll start by saying, and I think this was like underlying your question, like I went from like high profile, big news job to lower profile. And, you know, I think some people might wonder like, why would you do that? Why would you go from immigration to education or from politics to education? And the reason is, is because I saw this as an opportunity to write about really some of the issues that are core to the American experience today. So what I decided to do after sort of getting myself oriented on the beat was I spent my first full year at the Post uh, working on a series of stories about school integration and segregation. And it started out with a story I wanted to write about my hometown of Shaker Heights, Ohio, and its long-term work towards racial integration um, in housing and in schools. And and the struggle to make that promise real today and where that's falling short. And I brought that story with me and I knew I was going to write that for the post, but I ended up building out a whole series around it where we did a big data analysis about where, where is school integration today. And we learned that there are actually far more children in school with kids of other races than ever before because of the migration of uh, mostly Latino students out to smaller towns. We did a story about uh, about a Brooklyn middle school um, program where they are diversifying their middle schools. And I followed two kids as they ended up going to opposite schools than what you might've expected. One white girl from a wealthy family and a uh, Latino boy who was going to a very elite middle school. So I got to do the kinds of stories that were just like really satisfying to me. And as it turns out, my story about Shaker was so satisfying to me that I, some people asked me if I had had ever thought about turning it into a book. And I decided that that was something I was interested in doing. And so over the last year I prepared a proposal and I ended up getting a book deal to do this as a book about Shaker. And it's, um, its history and its presence. So, uh, which is really exciting to me. So it's just opened up, uh, uh, although I have ended up with some news this year because this American school shut down as uh, anyone with kids will have noticed, but really this beat has afforded me the opportunities that I was hoping for, which was to step back a little and write about issues that are really core to what's happening in this country right now. One of the things I'm learning from your story is that in this field of journalism, there are almost these two camps, almost like some people who are doing reporting and others who are doing the longer form story journalism. And it sounds like you are more drawn to and find more gratification in those longer stories. Is that a fair characterization? 
I mean, I think that I don't think there's like two neat buckets. I think a lot of reporters do both and I do both. But yes, I am drawn to trying to do more enterprise uh, reporting. But I like both. I mean, I really enjoy both. So it's, um, you know, it's I like having a balance. What advice would you have for anybody considering a career in journalism? My advice would be, and it's a hard time, I mean, because regional and local journalism has been decimated and that worries me a lot. But my advice would be work for your college newspaper, get internships, think ambitiously, do big stories. And if it's something that you really want, like it's that you're really interested in, just like keep knocking on the door and keep showing that you can do it. And, and when you can seek out advice for people, show people your stories, find somebody who you respect. And if you can get to know them, say, what did you think of the story and ask for a candid, a candid read and then work to implement those ideas. So it's hard, but I think the key is to just do it. And and there are opportunities. There are opportunities out there, but it it isn't like, you know, it's not something where you can just go get a journalism degree and then expect to get a job. It's like, you have to actually really work and show that this is something you can do and that you want to do. All right, Laura, let's head into the lightning round. I've got my four final questions for you. And the first is, what would you say is the smartest career move you ever made, whether intentionally or accidentally? Well, the smartest thing really was joining the Wall Street Journal because the Wall Street Journal taught me how to frame a story and write an ambitious story in a way that I had did not understand beforehand. So that's where I really feel like I truly went up a level was, was learning from the people at the journal. Although the luckiest thing was working for this jerk who ended up getting me to the AP. If you could have one do over, what would it be and why? Just one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't see a do over in the course of my career. Um, I I'm, there are a hundred things I would do differently, but there isn't like one big career move that I feel like would have been different. I wish it, I wish I could have gotten a job more quickly out of Canton. I mean, that was frustrating. I wish I could have gotten to the wall street journal more quickly without, um, sort of struggling, but it kind of all worked out. What's one piece of career advice that you wish you could go back and give to your younger self? It'll all work out. Just keep yourself focused. Don't be so insecure. And how do you define success for yourself? Um, I think it's like doing work where I feel like I'm growing and taking on things that are more ambitious and important to me. I mean, that that's really what success is for me. I think like I could get another beat tomorrow and you know, it could be great depending on what it is. I mean, I, I don't, I don't need to only cover one type of story, but as long as I feel like I'm challenging myself and doing something that matters, then I feel like I'm succeeding. I wish I could reach across Zoom and give you a big hug right now. Uh, (laughs) So Laura, I have so enjoyed getting to know you in this kind of way. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this was fun. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll subscribe, listen to our past episodes and tell your friends. We also invite you to visit our website, careercurves.com, to join the conversation and take advantage of the resources we've posted to help you in your career. Finally, be sure to like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.